Hey, thanks for tuning in to the season finale episode of Pine Size Stories. I'm your host, Justin Salinas. So for any first-time listeners, this is a podcast where I have a guest over for a pint of homebrew or craft beer and have them tell their favorite, true, personal story. It can be of any theme they like and from any point in their life, too. After their story, we'll chat about different things, such as why the story was important to them and what kind of impact the story had on who they are. All of this over a pint of tasty beer. For this final episode, I'm joined by the talented Sean Morrill. Let's get to it. Okay, I'm here with Sean Morrill. Sean, how's it going? Doing well, Justin. Uh, cool, man. That's good to hear. Uh, I know it's been a really nice weekend so far, and we got a, I got a lot more sun left this weekend, so I think it's going to be a good one. Uh, cool. So, uh, for your story, do you want to give a little bit, of, tell a little bit about yourself, uh, so they maybe get a little context for the story? Sure. You and I, I guess we met each other both at our local. Um, local bottle and tap shop, uh, yeah. Chuck's Hop Shop, yeah. uh, inadvertently met, and then we both, or you joined the same homebrew club that I'm in, mm-hmm. so later on, and we realized that we had had beers before together. <laughs> that was that was a funny realization, <laughs> where it was like, wait a, wait a second, I, I know you. Yeah. <laughs> that, we, was, that was funny. So mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that really helped uh, kind of start this friendship off. I guess that was what maybe a year, year and a half ago or so, yeah, something like that. Yeah, about a year and a half ago. Yeah. So yeah, it was shortly after that I joined the homebrew club. I think after that mm-hmm. uh, that time we met at Chuck's Hop Shop. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so speaking of uh, speaking of the homebrew club. Yeah. This on this episode, this is the first episode where uh, I am not providing the homebrew, but the guest is providing the homebrew. So Sean, you want to uh, you want to run us through your beer here? Sure, absolutely. So this is the. So far, first and only sour beer that I've ever brewed. I, we call this the Sourpuss. So um, <laughs> it is, uh, if those of you are familiar with the, the brewery out of uh, California, mm. and it's, of course, misspelled, but uh, <laughs> they, they make a beer down there called Tart of Darkness, which is a sour stout. Uh, really incredible beer, one of the first Phenomenal ones I fell beer. fell in love with. Um, and there is a couple places online where you can actually order a Tart of Darkness clone kit. Mm-hmm. And I had gotten a, um, a gift certificate for Christmas at some point in time. Um, and they send you the grain uh, the grain bill for it, as mm-hmm. well as some some oak cubes that were actually used. Uh, they were basically cut up barrels from Tartar of Darkness barrels. Wow. So they actually connected with the brewery mm-hmm. to like, hey, let's get the oak from used barrels of a beer that we're going to clone. Yeah. This was a totally is, sanctioned recipe from wow. the brewery itself. Yeah, because there's plenty of recipes, clone recipes out there yep. that are just like shots in the dark. They, It's close, but it's not like, oh, they, they gave us the recipe. That Bingo. is like actually working with them. Cool. Yeah. So the only thing that I had to supply after that was the, the yeast. Yeah. So um, we brewed this up. Uh, my wife and I are, are co-brewers on these things. And we brewed this up before we moved to Seattle uh, when we were down in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and we had a two-tier Kegel system, five gallons. Mm, Those of you that homebrew know that's it's a pretty decent system to to grow with. But um, we brewed that, and then we actually put it in a plastic bucket, added the yeast, and I let it sit for somewhere around 10 months in the the bucket. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It had a nice pellicle on top, which... 
like if you had seen a normal beer, you go, "What the heck did you do to that beer? It's it ruined." In, yeah, it looks infected. It looks yeah, gross. it looks, it looks really mold. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty yeah, yeah, pretty moldy. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but let that sit for a good long while. Uh, bottled it up, added a little bit more yeast at bottling, and sugar. Um, it didn't actually end up really carbonating a whole lot. It's a fairly still beer, mm-hmm. but this was now going around about. I guess three plus years ago. Jeez, yeah, it's that drinking we this beer. very smooth. You can tell. I mean, I can definitely tell when I drink it that it is it is really really softened on the edge and really mellowed out with all that time. Yeah. Uh, what cr- is what is the ABV sitting at? Uh, it's close to ten percent. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> does does not drink like ten percent? Yeah. Um, there's definitely some time put on this beer then because this drinks like. Nowhere near 10% at all. Well, it's got a lot of lactic acid to it. We used basically the, um, the I guess it's the White Labs. Uh, White Labs makes a Rosalaire yeast blend, which is a mix mm-hmm. of um, Saccharomyces and a bunch of souring bugs, like yeah. uh, Lactobacillus mm-hmm. and, and things like PDO that. PDO and stuff. PDO, yeah. yep. And uh, we ended up doing the... Um, uh, or I guess it's why yeast does that. We did the White Labs equivalent of that oh, yes, particular yeah. one. So, um, and I've been super, super happy with the way this beer turned out. Yeah, it's so. got a, a nice, a very firm tartness to it, mm-hmm. but it's not overwhelming. It doesn't, it doesn't make uh, quite make the back of your mouth tingle, but it's enough that there's like a firm, a yeah. firm tartness, sourness to it. Uh, the the like the the dark roast. I guess the way it plays off mm-hmm. with the with the lactic acid, almost like. I get like a like almost like a soft red wine notes. Right. Yeah, which is like so incredible to get that out of a beer. It's I feel like a beer like this like starts blurring the lines between uh, wine and beer. Well, if I remember correctly, the the tart of darkness barrels are red wine barrels. Okay, so that, you're, that would you're make definitely sense. getting that. And the the oak doesn't go in until say six months in. Oh, so they so let. Oh, okay, they let they, it develop a little bit. They let the beer develop, and then you throw in the oak because that adds some additional bugs. Yeah. So from the barrel, mm-hmm. so they want to give it a chance for the beer to actually ferment on the the Saccharomyces, the standard yeah the regular yeast yeah um, before the uh, the other bugs take over and and chew the rest of the sugars away. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, incredible yeah. job, man! Like hand, hands down, one of the best sour beers, sour home brewed beers I've ever had. And I've had I've had a couple. I've had you know, I know some people that make sour beers and that like to focus on that. But um, yeah, man, that is really, really, really well done. Sour beers take just so long to make. Like you said, you ten months before you even touch the damn thing, yeah. um, which is pretty standard. You know, souring, souring bacteria, souring bugs, and yeast take a take a while to really take hold. And uh, create that those flavors. So uh, really, really impressive. It's really a commitment. Um, you can do shorter term ones like your Gozas, Brevillier devices, Brevillier devices, and yeah. I've. I've been reading more about those because I'd really like to brew one. Yeah. And, um, Kettle souring and all that. For those that homebrew out there, one of the best resources I've found is that there is a, um, a group on Facebook of all places called Milk the Funk. Yes. Uh, it is one of my favorite groups to follow because they actually have, it's a very scientific group, mm-hmm. uh, which is also follows after our homebrewing group as well. Yeah. We're, we're all very technical. technical. Yeah. And there's a bunch of commercial brewers in there that talk about process and they do a lot of lab 
analysis of sour mm-hmm. beers and in the process and you know what does what and when do you add what and it's it's very very educational yeah. um, and, and even as a, a, a relative noob sour brewing person I wouldn't feel bad going in there and asking questions yeah. it's very welcoming to that type of stuff yeah, and I've noticed that since you've uh, invited me into that community yes uh, which I do appreciate that it is oh, yeah. I feel like I've learned a lot just like hanging out in that forum and just being like wow these these are professionals coming in and bringing in info this is cool it's a fantastic resource yeah yeah cool man so um yeah yeah, we'll keep sipping on this do you want to uh, hop into your story here yeah let's do that all right great let's do it so uh, basically my story today is not letting opportunities pass you by uh, because you kind of never know what you're going to expect so this is going to go back uh, quite a while to 1991. Ooh. So um, I was 14 at the time, so you guys can do the math. <laughs> uh, and at that point in time, I was living just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. That's where I grew up uh, in that Roswell, Alpharetta area. So I had gone the night before when I attended church to a church lock-in that my parents uh, sent me off to. Mm -hmm. So went to the lock-in, of course, there's a lot of, you know, it's a bunch of other, you know, teenagers and things like that. So you don't sleep, basically, you know, you watch movies and play basketball and hang out. It's, I guess, a chance for the parents to get the night off. Yeah, I've I've experienced that lock-in kind of thing before. It's funny. (laughs) Absolutely. So um, my mom came to pick me up the next morning and she said, hey, I heard about this thing. Why don't we go do this? And I was like, and she said it was something about yada, 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 3M luge challenge. And I was like, <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. Is that English? I am sleep deprived. Fine, whatever. Let's, you know, let's go do that. So we basically haul out to, um, you know, a, a, a road where this group of people from 3M, the company that makes like your scotch tapes and stuff like that. Oh. So it's that 3M. So it is, uh, and they basically were a big sponsor of the Junior Olympic Luge program for the states. So, um, and you know, they they constantly have to get people in the program to put into for the Olympics and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So they were basically doing a tour around the states, and I think it was something like a dozen different cities or so, and they were basically looking to... um, to find kids that could enter the program Mm. and start, you know, going through the process and training and things like that. So they basically had these, if you've ever seen a luge sled, it's, um, it's kind of like your almost like your old school bobsled type yeah. things um, or toboggans, I guess is yeah, a better yeah. way to put it. But they have metal runners on them. So okay. you kind of sit on this little platform, maybe about four inches off the ground. Jeez. And then you've got metal runners and they come out front and they're um, candy cane shaped up front. Okay. So they gave us a bit of instruction of, you know, here's how you actually drive the sled. So when you see people in the Olympics doing the luge stuff, they just look like they're laying there. Yeah. It is absolutely not that. It, it is super, super interactive. So what I what I learned out of all this is that you actually steer the sled down the entire track. There's oh. at no point in time where you're really not doing anything. Yeah, just so hanging out on it. Even yeah. even on the straights, you need to make sure you are going straight. Whoa. So it's uh it's actually got quite a bit of skill involved. But they 
They basically taught us the basics of how to steer the sled, and they had it where we had a, you know, a decently steep hill, and at the bottom of it, they had kind of a sand pit area. They had basically just taken... You know, playground sand and spread it all over the uh, the asphalt. Yeah. Um, and to stop the sled, you basically sat up, pulled the front to uh, like you reached in between your legs, put your feet down on the ground, and pulled up on the back of the sled. So you're basically dragging the back of the sled and using your feet to stop in the sand. Wow. So I mean, at first we're going like 10 miles an hour. Okay. It's yeah. like nothing significant at all. Mm. And little by little, they have us keep going up the hill. And at the very end, um, if you've watched the Olympics again, the, the, the luge people, they have the, the little handle things to pull off of at the start. Mm-hmm. So they usually rock back and forth a That's little right. bit, and then they yank, and then they, you paddle with your, your hands. Uh, on the ground and then you lay down and go down the rest of the track Mm -hmm. well they basically had a pickup truck with that sort of setup with a ramp coming off the back of it (laughs) so the very end of the day basically any kids who you know they either felt worthy or didn't have a fear of killing themselves (laughs) uh, were basically allowed to get up on the back of the sled and just do a pull off you know, okay. of course, there's n- there's no paddling because you know you've got bare hands. Yeah. it's not a big deal. Rip them up. And then go down the hill and, and stop. Well, evidently, um, they liked what they saw in me at that time. Mm-hmm. So a few months later, uh, I get and we get a thing in the mail saying, "Sean, you've been invited to come to Calgary." <laughs> and go ahead and start going through this preliminary training process so and luckily the opportunity came up Uh, my parents were fairly well to do at the time and they said if you would like to do this sean you can do it wow we will we will help send you up there support you that's so great we will support you in going up there so this was uh fall of 91 so it was a week's program so fly from atlanta up to calgary and of course, Calgary had had the Olympics up there. Oh, I think it's either in, I think it was either eighty four or eighty eight. So they have a. It was a combination luge and bobsled track up there, which oh, is why they so wanted nice. to take kids up yeah, there really nice. because it gives them a chance to train actually on ice. And so I went up there. There was probably I think anywhere between a dozen and two dozen kids that all got invited up there. We were divided up into two age groups, um, Mm. younger and older. I was the top of the younger group. Mm. Um, And essentially we got to stay in the Olympic training center and actually practice on the real track. Like if you've ever watched the movie Cool Runnings. Yes, I have. Yeah, great movie. That's the track. The actual track, that's it? Oh, wow. So okay. I go back and I watch that movie and I go, I, I have done that. That's I've so been neat. been down that track. That is so neat. Um, back in the, in the day, too, I remember seeing that they also had where tourists could actually take the bobsled down the track. They would have a pro driver, but you could actually do a ride along down the track, like oh, half of it. Yeah. So, And we were only doing half of the track because even get half the track, and we were using these old rickety sleds, like they were wooden sleds. The ones that they use nowadays are like carbon fiber. Oh, yeah. But, you know, these are kids. You're just learning. There's no reason to put you on a carbon fiber <laughs> fr- no, sled. destroy it. Uh, exactly. So uh, we... They basically had us going down there, and near the end, I mean, we were hitting. They they have mile an hour, like they can actually they track that. They have speed traps along the track. Oh, okay, and we were hitting close to fifty. So, As a fourteen year old, yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez, they must have had a lot of trust in you guys. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I, I fell off the sled a few times. Uh, so, And I will admit, an ice wedgie is about as lovely as it sounds. Uh, I do not recommend it. Uh, but it was a learning process. So, it, And it was a, a super interesting opportunity. And in the last day, we had kind of a mock competition. So we had essentially the amateur start area, and then they had the pro start area. The pro start area is where the Olympics uh, do the same. They start at the same time. Mm-hmm. So the amateur one is a bit further down the track, so you can't hit as high speeds. Okay. On that track, if I remember correctly, they usually hit north of 90 miles an hour for coming off of the Olympics one. Wow. Yeah. I had no clue they go that fast. Well, and the thing is, is that luge is the fastest of all the sleds. So oh. it's actually faster than bobsled and it's faster than skeleton. Whoa, skeleton. Wow. So, yeah. You know what skeleton is? No, no. So it sounded really cool. It's <laughs> kind of uh, the... it's. It's not a ska thing, but it's the opposite of <laughs> <laughs> it's the opposite of luge. Instead of going feet first and laying on your back, you go head first and you lay on your stomach. Okay, and that sounds a lot scarier. Yeah, because <laughs> and you you know these days with the advent of GoPro cameras, if you you can go and watch those competitions on you know ESPN eight the Ocho, mm-hmm. and uh, you can you can actually watch their heads bounce off the ice. They have they, oh, ha- they have face plates. Like everybody has a face plate in luge and skeleton, but yeah, mm-hmm. they they bounce off the ice because of the g forces. Because you're producing you know five to six g's yeah on those turns oh yeah Yeah. oh yeah yeah giant banked turns but um i ended up doing pretty well up in calgary and so uh like we had a mock competition i actually was the fastest of the group Mm. so i was really really stoked about that Uh, really happy um and then went back to georgia went back to school things like that and Mm. there's like little write-ups in the paper Um, (laughs) it was actually kind of funny because it was me and one other kid from georgia so i actually like we ended up knowing each other then we didn't go to the same school or anything like that we lived in different areas but we stayed in contact with each other for a bit Mm -hmm. um both of us ended up getting invited to the next step so that that spring we both ended up going up to lake placid new york which is another site of the Olympics. And we were up there for a whole month training. Wow. So, and that was a lot of the same. It was just more intense. And the one big difference between those two tracks was the one in Calgary was had a lot of long straights in between the turns. Mm-hmm. where uh, And that's because it was a combo luge and bobsled track. Uh-huh. Whereas the one up in Lake Placid was super, super twisty. And because they Technical. had a separate... Uh, luge and bobsled track mm, from each okay. other. The the bobsled tracks always have more straights, mm. but the luge one was yeah. It's basically a slalom the entire way around. Yeah, very much more technical. Oh yeah, it mm. was it was pretty crazy. Um, I did all right there. I wouldn't say I did as well as I did up in Calgary, um, but I did end up getting invited again to continue training. Jeez. Uh, but at that point in time, it was one of those things where we would really need to have moved to a winter city. Training mm. for luge is really difficult when you live in Atlanta. <laughs> it's a, a little warm and humid in Atlanta. I they hear. don't necessarily have a track. Go figure. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, so yeah, it was uh, that was kind of the tail end of my my luge career. But one of the things it sort of taught me that entire time was I you know I shouldn't pass up on opportunities. Yeah. So this was an experience that. You know, I don't know anybody else I've ever talked to that can say, yeah, I was part of the Junior Olympic Luge program. God, that's so cool. So it, it has shaped my life in terms of later on, like, this seems really strange. This seems different. 
but I'm going to totally do it mm, yeah. because this is not something that I'm going to get something out of it, no matter yes. what, whether yeah. it's good or bad, a learning experience doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's having that sort of curiosity to continue doing mm-hmm. strange stuff. I wouldn't have gone into homebrewing. I wouldn't have done oh. the, you know, I wouldn't have gone into the career I did without the curiosity factor. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's, it is one of those things that, that kind of started me off on that that foot. Being more open minded on those kind of absolutely on, yeah, new experiences. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is so cool, man. Like, yeah, uh, fourteen <laughs> to get involved with that. Man, when I was fourteen, I was like, all right, well, what what video game am I going to play when I get home? And like, oh, sure, yeah. Uh, that is really that is uh, must have been a really really fun experience. Uh, so you had mentioned like mm-hmm. early on as far as like how the sledding worked. Yeah, that like. Um, that you're not just like laying there at any point. Like even sure. if it's on straight, you're like doing, you know, you're doing thinking very hardly of how to steer uh-huh. it and, and stuff like that. You want to know how to steer the sled, don't you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be interesting. But, okay. uh, but more but yeah. of did you did you when you first before you you know that very first time that you went out mm-hmm. uh, when you were 14, uh, did you think sledding would be easy? That it would just be like oh you just go and sit in it and it was like gonna be no big deal and then yeah uh, being it, more of a passenger. I mean it did yeah. help being sleep deprived. That I didn't really think about what I was doing. I just kind of did it. And it's just like, oh, yeah, that's that's how you steer a sled. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, it's actually really interesting just from a technical standpoint. So what you do is you end up using your opposite shoulder and then you press in with your opposite leg. So say you want to turn the sled to the left. Mm -hmm. Um, You would press down with your left shoulder but push in on the the front part of the sled with Uh, your right right foot. foot. Ah. Okay, okay, okay. And then the opposite. Because what it is is that you're trying to not go up really, really high on the corners. Mm -hmm. If you can stay closer to the bottom of the track, the faster you will go because it's a distance thing. Yes, yeah. I so, experienced that on uh, on the velodrome on yeah. track cycling. Yeah, uh-huh. the closer you are to the to, to the, the bottom, the bottom is the shorter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can think of it as like in, in in the velodrome at least, and I'm sure it works the same for you guys. Mm-hmm. Is the easiest way to think about it is um, you know the distance that you go in in a small circle versus a little bit wider circle. That's a pretty you know that adds up over the course of an entire track. Of sure an, does. Of, of an entire lose track, I would imagine as well. Yeah. So yeah, if you make that you know, uh, theoretical circle smaller, getting to closer in like that, and yeah, it's uh, yeah a lot faster, a lot shorter amount of distance. So that's that's cool to like see that applied. And actually, I didn't realize that could be applied in other places like that. That's well, and, and also it's a um, it's a friction thing too because to climb up the side of the wall takes more energy than coming back down. So you lose a little bit of speed. And Mm -hmm. in luge, when you are down to hundredths of a second, it is just that that minute uh, in terms of time, every little bit is gonna make a difference. Yeah, I can mean the difference between first and third. Oh yeah second and fifth just like little fractions of a second like yeah. that it's it's crazy so uh after you had that first time that very mm-hmm. first time going when you're like half sleep deprived and whatnot did you <laughs> did you expect to get a letter from calgary like was no. it just like a, oh it's just this one thing mom wants me to do and oh, okay much. it might be fun yeah yeah and so it's just a complete surprise out of nowhere yeah i mean i went home and i went to sleep yeah <laughs> 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 I still remember that. So I mean, this yeah. is this is one of those memories that I will. It's forever ingrained. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, I went home, went to sleep, didn't even think about it, and then you know, this is the in the day before email, pretty much mm-hmm. uh, was prevalent. Um, yeah. Got yeah, that you piece of mail. About, uh, yeah, you weren't posting about uh, about it on Facebook per se. New. No. <laughs> Maybe in an AOL chat room. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, and so you mentioned, I thought this was really, uh, really interesting yeah. uh, to me just because I'm, I'm the oldest out of my two younger brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned that you were the oldest in the, like, the younger group that you were put in. Sure. Uh, was that like a, an interesting dynamic? Did you feel like some sense of like leadership? Uh, or that you had to like perform better or any, any sort of like pressures because you were the oldest on that? At that point in time, no, because I was a big geek and socially awkward. <laughs> so uh, it was a lot later in life where I sort of gained some confidence. Mm-hmm. And uh, that it, it was, and I, I wasn't by far like the top of the group the entire time. It just happened to be on that last day of competition. Something clicked and I was able to go faster than anybody else. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it just, it, it worked out that way. But uh, there, the one interesting thing was that, that there was a bit of a disconnect between the older and the younger group. So oh. it's like, and being the oldest of that younger group meant I didn't necessarily quite fit in with the top, with the younger group, didn't necessarily fit mm-hmm. in with the upper yeah, group so state. maybe there was a bit of pressure to perform there mm-hmm. but um that was a long time ago and i don't yeah. remember <laughs> yeah it was, it was a bit ago i was only a geez i was only like a toddler then yeah. when you were doing that yeah well yeah, oh well um and so as you like progress right you started the first sure. one and then you went to calgary and you moved on to the following one did like the gear change as you like went up did it get like more advanced or did they like give you um, like did uh, did the level of, of the quality I guess did that change did you, like did you see that along with like the level that you were uh, working at it was pretty much the cl- uh, the the sleds were about the same we had a couple kids that were starting to get really good with it and mm-hmm. um, they actually their their parents went and invested in metal mm-hmm. sleds oh, so wow. um, they they continue on from that and actually you know what I, f- I forgot to say that uh, the other kid from from uh, Atlanta, his parents and him did move to New York. Oh, to do it, and he continued on, and he ended up being part of the 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 full Junior Olympic program, uh, and he went into doubles luge, which is even Holy weirder. Shit. Yeah, wow. So um, they really stuck with it. Yeah, he did. So um, I don't know if he ever actually made it into the Olympics or not. I honestly mm-hmm. can't remember. I'd have to go back and look at the rosters from you know the mid '90s or early to mid '90s. But I mean, I I looked through just in trying to remind myself what year this happened i actually went back and i still have some of the stuff from lake placid oh cool so i've got like my yeah i've got my memorabilia so i've got some pictures from there i've got my pass to the olympic training center oh that's stuff like that that. yeah i'm Um, I'm big on keeping memorabilia stuff like that it's it's kind of cool to have that stuff and i actually found the uh the list of kids Oh, cool! All their names and stuff, and their addresses. So oh, from wow. back in the day. But, oh, wow! Uh, so I I have that, and I was like, oh yeah, there's the other Atlanta guy. That's cool. So technically, I could go back and find out if he ever ended up yeah. doing anything. Yeah. So you, more with you that. did lose. You did end up losing touch with him after he moved. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, sense. I I moved on to other things. I ended up getting into other weird stuff. I ended up doing um, indoor inline speed skating. Speed skating. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. You know, we don't do this whole football and baseball. Yeah. You like going crap. fast then. <laughs> it's like, no, I have to find the weirdest <laughs> and most out there things to actually do. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, as long as they're still fun, you're having a good time, right? That's, yeah. that's the important part. That's definitely but that, the that's part. part of the em- embracing the abnormal. So. Yes. Yeah. And that's so, that's so cool to to uh to like learn that at an early age that like or uh yeah i will try this like this can be fun let's just give it a shot and like Mm -hmm. uh to like really experience that at an early age and 
to see the power of it is like so cool. Uh, yeah. I feel like I didn't really start feeling that way until maybe like college or something like that. Sure. Uh, I was still like open to stuff, but um, yeah, and I think part of it was like I was trying new foods, I was meeting new people, different ideas, yeah, uh, and trying different things, and you know, doing started doing poetry and all this other stuff. And I was like, whoa, yeah, you can just like try stuff, and even if it is bad, like you still learn something from it. It was still yeah. an experience, you know. So uh, that's really great that you got to like learn learn that idea like at fourteen instead of way down the road. Well, and I I appreciate the parent the parents my parents uh, being proactive and allowing me to do things like that. You know, I was in the Atlanta boy choir as well and traveled mm. with that. I'm technically on a CD somewhere. So, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, just, I, I had a very privileged in terms of variety of things to do background and mm-hmm. childhood. And I will always thank them for that. So it, it's definitely made it so that you know again I, I don't fear experiences and going out and do things and, and try something new all the time yeah yeah it's so meaningful when when parents are supportive to that level yeah it's one thing to be like yeah okay go have fun whatever but to be like no we're gonna help you know i will sell this or i will help fund you mm-hmm. go to this losing thing uh in calgary at least, yeah, i remember you said they yeah. had helped you with that uh that is like so so meaningful to where your parents are like 100 percent behind you i've had yeah. my parents help me with some stuff like that before uh and it just really goes to show like how how powerful and how like meaningful it is uh when parents do that um yeah, because mm-hmm. it, it really propels you forward and like builds your helps like build your character and makes you just love them and love them that much more, you know? Sure. And yeah. I, I try to sort of pay some of that back uh, with my nieces and nephews nowadays. Oh, yeah, pay forward a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So when they turn, you know, around 14 or 15, uh, you know, we we try to fly our ki- the, the nieces and nephews as many as we can out to visit for like a week. Oh, that's cool. Um, so we have some of the kids in the family that have never been on an airplane before. And so, <laughs> oh, wow. you know, we did this a few times in Arizona and brought kids out and, you know, it's just like, hey, let's get you away from your parents and yeah. let you do something different. And that's just, uh, again, an experience that you won't forget. Mm-hmm. That's one of those things that you always have in your memory. Yeah. Uh, and especially if at that age that you're, you know, inviting them. Super influential. Yeah, yeah. Super influential. And like, it, I feel like if they don't have the, um, their parents, you know, you know, eyeing them down and right yeah. there with them, they can uh, kind of figure out more of who they are, you know. Uh, which is, I'm sure, you experienced when you're out in Calgary by yourself um, sure. doing this thing that you became uh, much more in tune with who you are and which uh, you know, like your individual your individuality developed. Yeah. Uh, so that's cool to like see you uh, see you foster that now with your nieces and nephews. That's actually really uh, maybe one maybe one day I'll be able to do that too. <laughs> I think I'm still on the whole. Uh, uh, figuring out my well, stuff. Well, I've, I've got a couple, I've got a decade plus on you, so, <laughs> yeah. you know. I'm not in any rush, I'll put it that way. <laughs> that's probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, Sean, uh, thank you so much, man. Thank you for the, like, one of the, like, craziest high-quality sour beers and homebrew I've ever had. Thank you. Uh, and for sharing a, a really wonderful story. Um, and it's it's good to see you uh, moving forward with that uh, that idea and uh, impacting that with your nieces and nephews. So it's, it comes full circle, I guess, right? Always. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I'll probably talk a bit in a second here about uh, this is the end of season one of the podcast. But uh, thanks for listening for the first season. And uh, yeah, y'all take it easy. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.
Thanks again to Sean for sharing his phenomenal sour beer and his experience with competitive sledding. Having supportive parents during those really formative years can be life-changing, and it's cool to see how positive of an impact that was for Sean. Well, that's it for season one. I want to thank everyone who listened and shared the podcast. Huge shout out to all of my amazing guests who took the time out of their busy schedules to come and tell their story. Don't worry, though. Season two of Pint Size Stories will be back in a couple months. I'm still going to continue recording. So if you're in Seattle and are interested in being on the show, please message me. That's a wrap. Take it easy, y'all.